אוקיי. שריף את האנד אוף דה ברייק ריז דה סיין. זה סלו דאון. So I feel guilty. I don't know. It's like I, I, I feel bad for you guys. I, I feel like um, like you know, the, the longer it goes, I feel really bad. I feel very guilty. and then at the same time, Sharif just raised the sign. Slow down again. So I guess that, that means that I shouldn't feel guilty. Grace always says, this is our opportunity. It's a once in a lifetime, so do it right. Yep. You know, if I could do a surah in half an hour, Maybe we would have hundreds or thousands of followers. But... Okay, so in this spirit... Go back to Ayah 49. Um... بل هو آيات بينات في صدور الذين أوتوا العلم وما يشحد بآياتنا إلا الظالمون آيات بينات you know normally it's translated as clear signs or a clear message. But bayinat really means clarifying. So it is a message it is a message of clarity or a message that clarifies. It's a message that elevates, that edifies. But this consistent theme that we find in the Quran that those who deny the message are dhalimun, they are unjust, and it, it deserves a pause because it's such a consistent theme in the Quran. And notice here that the injustice is two sides. They're unjust because they block themselves against what intuitively and innately they know. That all of this couldn't occur by coincidence. It takes a stretch, a contorted logic, like, for instance, billions and billions of years of coincidence created this encyclopedia. I mean, it just, I don't care how long you put a monkey on a typewriter, they're never going to type a novel. It doesn't matter if billions of years go, pass by, they're never going to type a novel. Um, 
So the injustice is towards the Lord, but also the injustice is towards yourself. Because instead of this point of clarity, I am here because there was a purpose and a will behind my existence. God wanted me here. I am here because I don't know why. And instead of when I die, I know that that's not the end of the story. Well, when I die, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Or nothing is going to happen. That's the, the, the constant theme that is again and again repeated in the Quran. Okay, so now move on to 52. قُلْ كَفَى بِاللَّهِ بَيْنِي وَبَيْنَكُمْ شَهِيدًا يَعْلَمُ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا بِالْبَاطِلِ وَكَفَرُوا بِاللَّهِ أُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْخَاسِرُونَ What's the significance of saying, you know what, it is enough that God is my witness. Because this is really what it's saying. It is instilling an attitude in the heart of believers. If ultimately, you, in, in this fitness, in all the difficulties you go through, if you're looking for social approval, you're not going to get it. If you're looking for your opponents to agree with you, then it's a full errand. If you're looking for loved ones to say, yeah, you're right, I admire you, Again, it's a fool's errand. Your compass has to change to saying it suffices that my conscience is clear with God, that God is the witness. And since once I am satisfied that God as the witness is happy with my position, then that should be sufficient. So it's talking to the Prophet ﷺ and say, and what it says to the to the Prophet ﷺ educates us and is an example for us. Remember that the revelation continues through the Quran. The Quran is the living prophet. So Ultimately, you know, they're going to go back and forth and argue with you. But when all is said and done, the bottom line is that you have to be able to say, Allah knows that I'm saying the truth. And that's enough. Because otherwise, the type of sacrifice that, that Allah is going to be asking Muslims to do would be too much for their consciousness. 
if you ultimately don't have that type of conviction, then it would be truly difficult to take the type of stand that is necessary at times to stand by what you believe in. And then that consistent, that, that repeated theme in the Quran, that often the, the mental excuse that people use is well, from the perspective of our experience of time, it's taking an awfully long time for God to make us suffer the consequences, whether these consequences are the end of existence and the hereafter, or the existence of civilizations that seem to be on the wrong path. So, and this is 53 and 54. And 55. يوم يغشاهم العذاب من فوقهم ومن تحت أرجلهم ويقول ذوقوا ما كنتم تعملون. The point here is that it's silly because the the the, the way that you experience time, you might think it's it's a long period, but ultimately it is coming, and when it comes. How much time it took for it to come will completely be irrelevant. It's like when the Quran tells us about those who die and then Allah says, or the angels ask them after resurrection, how long do you think you've been dead? And they say a day or two. It's the same, same idea that we find often the Quran reminds us of. You know, people who existed during the Mughal, the, the Mongol Empire must have felt like the Mongols will reign supreme forever. Where are the Mongols? Or the Byzantian Empire, it seemed like it's eternal. Or those who existed in the Sassanid Empire, an empire that existed for hundreds of years. Or those who existed at the time of any of the empire, any of the empires of Mesopotamia and the Euphrates that dominated the world. Humans experience time in, in a way, and it takes a level and notice that the only way that you can understand place time in its proper perspective is either through a direct relations with divine time, so your relationship with Allah makes you understand that your entire life is but is millisecond in Allah's time. It's like you, you're literally like one of those light flies that, that flickers for a second and then poof, gone. That's your life 
from the divine perspective or through the study of history. And that's why the Quran constantly tells you, look at past nations. Because you're not going to understand that what you think is a dominant paradigm of power or subjugation or dominance or injustice is actually far from lasting and far from even very long. But it is a direct connection with the divine time and or a study of history. And that's why historians, you know, often talk about existing civilizations with so much skepticism because 200, 300, 400, 500 years is nothing. Okay. So now... Up to verse 55, it is prepping Muslims for what it's ultimately giving them as a now a charge and obligation. And that comes in 56. يا عبادي الذين آمنوا إن أرضي واسعة فإياي فاعبدون. Okay, know that my earth is large. Can we derive this from a normative command that we that the current world? where we've created borders and visas and all that is really against Quranic ethics. I believe so, but that's another matter for another day. But your the earth is much larger than your society in Mecca and your circumstances in Mecca. So go seek a divine life where you can. Right after Surah Al-Ankabut, with the first, the, the Prophet ﷺ sent the first group of migrants to Ethiopia, to Abyssinia. And then, within a year of that, came the order to migrate to Medina. Literally, you, the, the Allah it's like you are, it's a divine plan that you need to study. That's why we study the Quran and the seerah together. Right after this, notice that some of the people that are going to migrate to Abyssinia are among the closest to the Prophet. And in migrating to Abyssinia, they're going to get on a ship. They didn't, these people traveled by camels in the desert. It was not common for them to go to a port of sea and, and get on a ship. And it is very scary. 
and they go to Abyssinia and they don't know, they, they have no connections. These are not fellow Arabs where they have family relations and so on. It is completely an unknown other than the command of the Prophet. And they go there and Mecca follows them. Mecca sends people after them to ask the king of Abyssinia to turn them over. And as far as they're concerned, put yourself in their place. You're sitting there, you, 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 the, the king of Abyssinia gives you permission to exist, but you don't have jobs, you don't have connections. You, you, so you're basically on your own find, uh, looking for a place to live, looking for a livelihood. The, the, king, the Abyssinian king is not feeding you. You're not guests in his palace. You're living in the villages. These were the first migrants, migrant Muslims. All the prestige of Mecca and the livelihood of Mecca and the commerce of Mecca and the markets of Mecca and the poetry of Arabs is gone overnight. They're living in Abyssinia, a language that for the most part they don't even know. They walk, they live with translators. We need to study the seerah. They lived with translators. They lived in huts. They were so, they couldn't afford homes made of mud. So the, these, my group of Muslims, including Jafar ibn Abi Talib, the Prophet's cousin, and Ali's brother, lived in a straw hut because he couldn't afford anything else. Straw, one room. And they relied on translators. And then when they heard that the Meccans have sent a delegation to the Abyssinian king, can you imagine the anxiety as they're sitting there thinking, if we're turned over, it's going to be death. Because we've embarrassed Mecca and betrayed Mecca by seeking asylum in Abyssinia. What they had to hold to are the surah of the Quran, including, including Surah Al-Ankabut. So among the most amazing is that they would sit and they, as they would, they spent evenings would study the Quran, what was revealed from the Quran. And among the most amazing descriptions I've read is that how they would sit and read Surah Al-Ankabut and it would bring them comfort. Ya Okay, now we got my land, so be ready. I'm going to ask you to go to where you can worship me, not to go where you can make a livelihood. Not to go where you can become wealthy and rich. If you are going to be sincere and honest about this path, it is all about your relationship with me. Akbar. Not your relationship to anything else. Many Muslims couldn't hack it. 
Because the way we write Sirah, we, we don't tell you about this, the, the, the failure examples. Because we, we try to write a, a, a celebratory history. No, there were Muslims who could say, we can't do it. We can't migrate to Abyssinia. We can't migrate to Medina. We, we can't make that sacrifice. Now notice, right away when it tells them this, it reminds them of the bottom line. So what is the bottom line? All of you are going to die. Nothing more, some, nothing more sophisticated or, you know, you want to know why you should go where you can worship me and why you should be prepared to make that sacrifice? Because you're all promised death. We don't need long discourses about everything. If death is the inevitable conclusion, what more do you want? And the promise that after death, you are coming to me. وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ لَنُبَوِّئَنَّهُمْ مِنَ الْجَنَّةِ غُرَفًا تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارُ خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا نِعْمَ أَجْرَ الْعَامِلِينَ So those who persevere, their reward is Jannah. الَّذِينَ صَبَرُوا وَعَلَى رَبِّهِمْ يَتَوَكَّلُونَ وَكَأَيٍّ مِنْ دَابَّةٍ لَا تَحْمِلُ رِزْقَهَا اللَّهُ يَرْزُقُهَا وَإِيَّاكُمْ وَهُوَ السَّمِيعُ الْعَلِيمُ So, Allah at this point says that I know that this will take sabr, this will take perseverance. But perseverance, الَّذِينَ صَبَرُوا عَلَى رَبِّهِمْ يَتَوْكَلُونَ This is verse 59. The methodology is a methodology of trusting Allah and persevering in Allah. And patience in the path of Allah. But Allah knows that the anxiety is always about livelihood and how we feed the children. And how we close the family. So Allah answers depending on your faith, either in the most anxiety producing way or in the most assuring way. It says Allah feeds all type of creatures all over the earth all the time. When you think about how many creatures in existence rely on Allah for their sustenance every single second on earth, well, it might be that the path, the sacrifice you need to take, it might require that you adopt that attitude. Basically, no assurances other than trust in God. That's why Surah Al-Ankabut was a bombshell. 
you are again I am emphasizing this because I don't see anyone in all the commentaries I've read that have paid any attention to this when Surah Al-Ankabut came to people who had livelihoods who had families who had tribal collection and connections and genealogies I am Ibn this, the Ibn of that, and the Ibn of this, and the Ibn of that. They had trade and commerce and networks, and they you know, had business in Yemen and business in Syria and business in Egypt and business in India and business in Bahrain and business in Persia. And suddenly you are saying there are priorities. Oh, it turned off. And these priorities might require you to make a huge sacrifice, a sacrifice of true jihad. Not donate 1% of your income, 2% of your income, 2.5%, 5% of your income. No, sacrifice it all. Okay. The commentaries on this portion of the of Surah Al-Ankabut typically, you know, say like An Muqatil, An Kalbi, ذات المستضعفين من من المؤمنين كانوا بمكة ولا يقدرون على إظهار الإيمان فحسهم على الهجرة. In other words, the very earliest reports by Quranic commentators, it's clear that they understood. يا عباد الذين آمنوا إن أرضي واسعة فإياي فعبدون that it was a command for hijra. And then, of course, the the other research confirms us. But I, I just want to. The other thing is that there are reports, for instance, instance just to give you, um, that when this verse was revealed, uh, that some of them, فَقَالُوا كَيْفَ نَخْرُجْ وَلَيْسَ لَنَا كَيْفَ نَخْرُجْ إِلَى الْمَدِينَةِ this is if they were commanded to go to Medina or if they were commanded to go to Abyssinia. We have reports that on the same. كَيْفَ نَخْرُجْ إِلَى الْمَدِينَ وَلَيْسَ لَهْنَا بِهَا دَارْ وَلَا عَقَارِ فَمَنْ يُطْعِمُنَا وَيُسْقِينَا فَأَنْظَرْ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى هَذِي الْآيَةِ That they said, well, how do you want us to immigrate and we don't have a home there and we don't have property there? Who's going to feed us and who's going to clothe us? And the response was this ayah. The Quran continues with this theme. Underscoring this idea for this big challenge that Allah knows is coming to Muslims. This is on verse 61. 
ولئن سألتهم من خلق السماوات والأرض وسخر الشمس والقمر ليقولون الله فأنا يؤفكون الله يبسط الرزق لمن يشاء من عباده ويقدر له إن الله بكل شيء عليم ولئن سألتهم من نزل من السماء ماء فأحيا به الأرض من بعد موتها ليقولون الله قل الحمد لله بل أكثرهم لا يعقلون So here is the group of rhetorical questions. This is from 61 to 63. Rhetorical questions that these, you're talking to believers, to Muslims. And normally this type of, these types of rhetorical questions are directed at kuffar, but here it's directed at believers. And it says, if you ask them, Who created the earth, the, earth the, the, the heavens and the earth? They say Allah. Who created the moon and the sun? They say Allah. Who is capable of creating livelihood and means of living? They say Allah. Who allows things to grow And, and vegetation and life to exist through water coming from the heavens and the earth sprouting and fruit and so on. Say Allah, قُلْ أَلْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ بَلْ أَكْثَرُهُمْ So, unlike when the Quran talks to, when it poses rhetorical questions to Kufar, like for instance, when it says, you know, do your idols avail you of anything? And they, and then the comment usually is, truly these are the ignorant, truly these are the misguided. But here, because the rhetorical questions are directed at Muslims, so what do you say in response to the rhetorical questions and their answers to the rhetorical questions? So when they answer, say, it is Allah, say, Alhamdulillah, then it's like, say, قُلْ الْحَمْدُلِلَّهِ بَلْ أَكْثَرُهُمْ لَا يَعْقُلُونَ So say, you know, Alhamdulillah, so can't you think rationally? It is as if Allah is telling you, it is the most logical thing. If I'm asking you to make the sacrifice, then If you are truly a believer, then the answers are obvious. Then a reminder that underscores all of this because it is not a promise that Allah, you're going to migrate and you're going to have an easy time or that you're going to migrate and Allah is going to make you rich. Allah doesn't promise them that. Because actually many of them are going to migrate and eventually lose their life in battle. And some of them are going to be to migrate and be among the Ahlul Safwa or Safwa as they're called. The, 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 the impoverished homeless people that live in the mosque. Some of them are going to become rich. Sure. But that promise collectively doesn't hold. Individually some will be rich, some will not. Some will live, some will die. Some will become, will catch the plague. 
and die of disease. Some, as I've talked about in my khutbah, go from being very rich in Mecca to complete rags in Medina. So, what does the Quran remind them of? وَمَا هَذِهِ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا إِلَّا لَهْوٌ وَلَعْبٌ وَإِنَّ الدَّارَ الْآخِرَةَ اللَّهِ هِيَ الْحَيَوَانِ لَوْ كَانُوا يَعْلَمُونَ So you want the ultimate reminder? The ultimate reminder is that this life on this earth is nonsense. It's just play. You want the real life? It's the life that comes later. Because if this was the real life, Allah would have to tell them, migrate, I'm going to make you richer. But that cannot hold as a collective promise. Allah knows that some of them will become richer and some of them won't. Some of them will live, some of them will die. So what Allah needs to remind them of is keep things in perspective. You're born, you grow up, you have a bunch of fun, and before you know it, you're old, you have many diseases and ailments, and you die. That's the entire narrative. That's the entire story. All the in-between are details. And then the often oft-cited reminder Many of you, and this goes back to the theme of confusion. Many of you say, when presented with a true challenge and a true sacrifice, when people don't want to sacrifice, what did we say they do? They say, oh, I'm confused. I'm not sure. Well, you know, after all, I discovered, I'm not sure if I'm a Muslim at all. Maybe I'm not. Well, because they're being asked to sacrifice. And this is precisely what happened with a lot of Muslims at the time. So Allah tells you the most obvious test. What if you are in a ship that is about to drown? In our days, what if you are in a plane that is about to crash? At that moment, are you going to start saying, Allah, please, 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 please. You're going to start reading the Fatha. You're going to start begging Allah, please, 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 help, help, help. If you are honest enough with yourself and you are in fact one of those people who go to start begging Allah or if you child is kidnapped, disappears and you're panicking as you're trying to find your child, then know that your claim is of confusion, of obfuscation because you don't want to sacrifice. A true unbeliever would go with the plane down crashing, say, God be damned. With the ship that's going to sink, say, there is no God to help me, I'm not going to pray to anything. The child kidnapped. Police, help. No, you can't help? Well, okay, the child is gone. That's a true unbeliever. 
Very few people are true unbelievers. That's where it actually makes a big difference. Very few people are true unbelievers. فَإِذَا رَكَبُوا فِي الْفُلْكِ دَعَ اللَّهُ مُخْلُصِينَ لَهُ الدِّينِ فَلَمَّا نَجَّاهُمْ فِي الْإِلَى الْبَرِ إِذَا هُمْ يُشْرِكُونَ So this is 65. That you know, so many of you, you pray when you're about to drown. But of course, every time you get out of the, the, the hard spot and you know you start entertaining all your confusions again. 66 is the one that underscores this. لِيَكْفُرُوا بِمَا أَتَيْنَاهُمْ وَلَا يَتَمَتَّعُوا فَسَوْفَ يَعْلَمُونَ So, okay, so you keep, the, whether that test is actual or hypothetical, but ultimately it is so you can continue existing in a state of oblivion enjoying God's bounties and sort of the sad comment, well, you know, you will come to know. You enjoy God's bounties and you can maintain the state of oblivion as long as you want, you will come to know. Then a comment to the people of Mecca that is actually quite remarkable. 67. Don't they see if they reflect upon their own condition? Don't they see that in Mecca? They live a secure and safe life. And people all around them, an amazing expression, they are being abducted and seized all around them, but they have a safe life. Arabia, people in Mecca are living stable, consistent lives life of stability but all around arabia the entire arabian desert so many tribes live on pillaging and raiding and that is why you could wake up outside mecca you could wake up a free man or a free woman and by night you become a slave all it takes is for someone to grab you and your status changed in fact, if you are traveling in a caravan and that caravan is not under the protection of a powerful tribe and that caravan is raided, you, you could go from a free woman or a free child or a free man to a slave. And as a slave, and that was a way of life. So Allah is reminding Meccans, you guys enjoy a stable life and a stable economy. Do you think that this is a coincidence? Now reflect, is this for you or because Allah has a cause and a purpose? 
if you take this and reflect on it, can you imagine if Muslims of today would say, haven't we noticed that Allah gave us all this oil right after colonialism? Tons and tons of money. Is this for us or does Allah have a purpose? Haven't, don't you notice that at a time where we live in the desert, making a living out of diving for pearls, meager incomes, nothing. No vegetation, no industry, no nothing. Suddenly, Allah gives us all this. If the, this, the descendants of the, the Meccans, the Arabs of Arabia, would pay attention, our fate as Muslims could have been very different. Is it a coincidence that right after colonialism, we have the means to build a, a civilization more than the Umayyads, more than the Abbasids, more than the Andalusians have ever established? Is that a coincidence? And what do you think when Allah, we go in the hereafter and say, yes, Allah, you know, we took all the oil money and we created all these investments in Paris and in Geneva and, in, and you know, and we bought soccer teams and we bought, including the Emiratis, buy an Israeli soccer team that is Islamophobic and that is racist against Arabs and Palestinians. And, you know, we've invested your money in great causes, nightclubs and Las Vegas. Remember that we saved Las Vegas. The, the Arab money saved Las Vegas. I mean, it's... Maybe because I'm an Arab, I'll say this. God's most cursed people. In the modern age, God's most cursed people. Yeah, I mean, I'm an Arab and I'm, I, I don't like looking at myself in the mirror because I'm an Arab. I'm ashamed. It's like that woman I mentioned in the khutbah that told the Prophet, if it wasn't haram, I would spit in my husband's face every day. I see him. If it wasn't haram, I would spit in my own face as an Arab every day. Anyway. So, Meccans, don't you notice that Allah has made you safe? Ponder. Think. But at the same time, the irony that now these Muslims are going to leave the haram al-amin, the safety of a stable life that Mecca, Meccan society has to a completely unpredictable and insecure and unstable life in Yathrib where they are living under constant threat, no prestige, and in Abyssinia, where they are absolutely nothing. Look at the irony and the duality and the paradox. So it's like telling the Kufar, look, you have a very stable, safe life. Oh, and you Muslims, um, you're going to have to sacrifice where you give up all that stability and all that safety.
ومن أظلم ممن افترى على الله كذبا أو أو كذب بالحق لما جاءه أليس في جهنم مثوى للكافرين وللذين جاهدوا فينا للهدينهم سبولنا وإن الله لمع المحسنين So this is now 68 and 69 Who is more unjust than that who gives the lie to God but how do you give the lie to God? You give the lie to God by by reflecting this lack of honesty in your relationship with God. So when if you believe that Allahu Akbar, then you, if you when you honor that principle that God is greater. Allah Akbar that 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 is is honoring the truth of with God. But when your life reflects that you don't really believe that God is, 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 is the truth of God is greater, that's giving the lie to God, and that's what's meant here. Now the the assurance the the best kind of assurance that these people can get at this juncture and at this point in the message. وَالَّذِينَ جَاهَدُوا فِينَا لَنَهْدِيَنَّهُمْ سُبُولَنَا Those who persist in jihad in our cause, جَاهَدُوا فِينَا doesn't mean go to war for us. Or who die for us, but those whose life is a life of jihad towards us, <coughs> we will. <laughs> is such a tender, beautiful, gentle expression. We will gently bring them to us. They will end with us. For God. Is God is with those who seek goodness and desire and covet goodness. Wait, I forgot something. And with that promise, Surah Al-Ankabut ends. That, وَالَّذِينَ جَاهَدُوا فِينَا لَنَهْدِيَنَّهُمْ سُبُولَنَا is the second, second dhikr of Surah Al-Ankabut. وَلَذِكْرُ اللَّهِ أَكْبَرُ وَالَّذِينَ جَاهَدُوا فِينَا لَنَهْدِيَنَّهُمْ سُبُولَنَا وَإِنَّ اللَّهَ لَمَعَ الْمُحْسِرِينَ After Surah Al-Ankabut comes the clear command for Hijrah which will but Surah Al-Ankabut is a critical 
transitory surah, which sparks the, the hijrah to Abyssinia and prepares for the hijrah to Medina and readies these Muslims for the idea of giving up for the path of God an entire lifestyle. And of course, they didn't at that point the command to fight, so they didn't, but but there are further steps that will prep them for, okay, you're going to have to defend yourself using arms, but that's that comes later. But it's a re remarkable symphonic surah from beginning to end, from saying, I know you're suffering, I know you're being persecuted to say, to taking you through this is the nature of the path this is what often a commitment to God entails but sometimes the path to God requires higher or requires total sacrifices if you are honest in the path of your Lord and understand that the societies that you think that you've constructed and that think you think exist without God are as cruel and as transitory and as meaningless as the societies of spiders and their webs and the solitary existence of spiders. Without the Lord, your existence is solitary, even if the entire world surrounds you. All your, so, all your social activity leaves you ultimately with emptiness. You know, you have fun for a little bit, but, you know, people try to fill it up with a lot of other, a lot of things, you know, sex, drugs, alcohol, whatever. People try to fill up the emptiness. It never gets filled. In, in our modern terms. Now, the surah itself breaks down in the following way. I wrote it here somewhere. The surah is broken fi in five main parts. And I'll explain to you why I, I left it till the end. The first part, roughly from 1 to 13, it talks about the trials and tribulations that Muslims and the sacrifices that Muslims are at the time going through. Then from second part to around... 44, 45, it takes you back to tell you that your trials and tribulations are not different from the stories of past nations. So it takes you to the stories of the past. The third part from around 45 to 
50-something. It tells you of the centrality of God's truth and what God's truth in the form of God's message means in anchoring and directing your life. Fourth part, it addresses the weakness of faith and the confusion in faith and the types of excuses that people or the type of causes that cause the confusion and weakness in faith or the type of things that people say to, you know, it's like lubrication. You know, sometimes when you need something to fit into something by force, so you lubricate. So confusion sometimes acts as a lubricant for a life away from God. And then finally, the fifth part, the sacrifice and the jihad in the path of God. Al-Ankabut is literally unlike a lot of surahs that you can take section one and recite section one and and get you know beginning and end from one of the sections. Al Ankabut you don't get what the surah wants to tell you unless you go through the entire sections. It starts out with, I know you're suffering. Okay. But then, if you, if you, if you grab one section out of context, you miss the entire point. So it starts out with, I know you're suffering, but then carries you in this sort of narrative to from I know to your suffering to your path is a path of jihad. <laughs> so it's, it's not I know you're suffering, but don't worry, I, I'm going to make it all better for you. But I know you're suffering, but understand that's the nature of life on earth for believers. And that the path of those, those those who walk in the path of Allah is one of sacrifice. But why? Because this is not the life that matters in Allah's from Allah's in Allah's law. This is the transitory life that is a dress rehearsal for what comes after death. Some of the, I mean, this maybe takes us a little bit uh, 
um, a little bit. Um, but anyway, someone said that before you are created, before you come, you're born on earth, you are in a state of ghaiba kubra. And after you die, you are in a state in ghaiba suhra. And that all human beings go through the big occultation, big ghaiba, and the smaller occultation, the, the small ghaiba, that it was a Sufi text that basically that you you start out in a ghaiba, in a state of great occultation, and then you're born and you have that li limited time of consciousness. But then you enter into another occultation and that's your death. And the point is, after you come out of the second occultation, what's going to become of you? Um, I thought it was interesting because the, the, the perception of consciousness as this sort of uh, an interruption between two occultations. Um, and it... The, okay, anyway. Yeah, so I'll, I'll stop here. Um, I'm sure I remember things. Now, you you understand maybe that why I didn't want to do Lankabut because it, it, it's it's. Um, I mean, I would still remember how I felt after I finished studying Lankabut, and it 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 turned my life upside down for a very long time, and. Um, but then, as I said, I, I, I prepared for a tour. And, but when I woke up, it was very clear that, I, I, no, it, that, that wasn't what I was supposed to do. Okay. So now what? <laughs> <laughs> um, who's, who's still here? Hello. Okay. Oh, okay. So short break so people can what was the question? question. Collect their questions. Okay. And submit them through. You want to tell people? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> after after you recover from the shock of the surah. <laughs> um, then if you want have any questions, we'll start with questions about the surah. Um, and then if we have time, because we, we actually, you know, because this was intended to be a Q&A, we actually do have quite a number of questions. And inshallah, um, we will hang on to them because we were talking about maybe having a Q&A sometime even before the next halakha. I don't know. We'll see. But for let's start with this surah. And then if you have questions, go ahead and, um, you know, you can send them through the chat. If you're on Google Meet, you can send them through the chat if you're on YouTube. If you have my text, uh, my phone number, you can text me, whatever. Um, and inshallah, then we can um, we can tackle them and see how we're doing. So we are closing in on the four and a half hour mark since we started late. Okay, so we'll just take like, uh, I don't know, a five minute break. Okay. Assalamu alaikum. Okay, be before we do the, the q and I just want to uh, 
say something. I don't know if, how, how you guys edit this stuff where you want to cut stuff and post it or whatever. About the, the, the applications. Um, yeah. Um, I just, the, uh, inshallah, as I said, I, I, I will be reading them and, and praying on them. Uh, with some, I'm not sure yet. We'll see how it goes. But I'm with some of them. I might call people and interview them. Um, but I, I right now, as it stands, we are inclined to accepting only as many people as we can fund which means that the number is going to be very limited um, because it's just, uh, you know, if, if we are actually going to start in January, inshallah, if we're able to, inshallah, uh, then, you know, that, yeah, that, that would limit the number of people so if if there are you know if the people out there are the 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 people that Allah has entrusted with the means I don't know if they ever if they even bother to ever listen to someone like me but just in case because <laughs> uh, Sharif says I insult rich people all the time and then I expect them to donate and the, as long <laughs> as I insult rich people they're not going to listen to me but so I'll try not to insult rich people at least in the for the sake of the students you know you you can you can uh, donate to sponsor a scholarship like say you know I'm creating I want to create one scholarship two scholarships ten scholarships whatever um, the 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 goal as I've said, but I won't say it again, is to create a group of people that have a level of intimate familiarity with the Quran. You know, this is a long journey. We haven't even dealt with something as formidable and as heavy duty and very, very heavy duty like Surah Al-Baqarah or Surah Al-Amran. Or Anisa, um, and it is invaluable to have Muslims that know the Quran well and know it as a living prophecy, not just as a dead book, not as a book that they put on their shelf and maybe read from in Ramadan or when someone dies, or but as a, as a living prophecy, a living prophet amongst them. And inshallah, my hope is also that these people can go back to these halakhas and organize this material in um, order of revelation. Um, because I, that's why I always say this surah was revealed after this surah and create um, tafsir, written published tafsir um, based on, on the work that I've done 
um, that tracks this research. Uh, because I think that would be an important contribution to the Islamic civilization. And it would be the beginning of a journey for Anyway, I mean, we, we offer what we offer to Allah and, and whether, regardless of the consequences, whether, whether, you know, but the important thing is that it is an important testimony before God. Uh, so, yeah, that's what I want to say. So right now I think I have um, just a, a well, I mean, please continue to send through any of your, any questions that you may have. Um, I'm actually going to have, give you that. So we have a, a guest questioner here. Thank you again for delivering us another masterpiece. So you've spoken at length about the names of the surahs being of paramount importance. Um, and that has stuck with me with Hijr and Ahqaf and all of these other ones. Um, and it makes, makes me think a lot. And here in Ankabut, you spoke about um, the web seemingly becoming a mirage of sorts. And I'm wondering whether in uh, all of the commentaries that you've reviewed, have commentators spoken about um, a couple things. First, um, the web representing a web of lies, um, lies that we tell ourselves. And this is what I was understanding from you as you were continuing to speak. Um, you know, in, in verse 46, for example, uh, it seems to be a, a warning against this false chauvinism and false nationalism uh, and anti-supremacist message, again, like the similar one that we saw in Ahqaf regarding Iblis, for example. Or, uh, you know, um, against a lot of the, the patterns of behavior that you said existed then and we can even see now that it looks very similar. Uh, that each of these strands uh, together build this um, system of lies or web of lies in which they then lie, <laughs> literally lie in, in order to receive um, a, a little bit of respite. Uh, and then I feel that then, as you said, uh, Allah then tells you to build a new society um, instead of building it on these lies to build it the the society based on Allah's truths that he has sent through the message so I was wondering whether there were uh, you know it, whether there were any commentaries that spoke about that and then uh, just to cap it off I thought of um, being that this was right before the hijra I thought of the story of um, the prophet and his companion going into the cave and um, being protected by the image of the spider web and I thought 
has anyone written anything on the metaphorical value of the fact that they came forward and were uh, ambushed or, or prohibited from seeing what was inside the cave because they're so used to the mirage of the spider web within which they already live that they thought, oh, there's nothing wrong here. Here's the spider web. This is just as normal and turned around and left. Yeah. Yeah, the, these are good questions. Um, the, uh, in Tafsir ibn Ajiba, and um, Tafsir Jilani, um, and another tafsir uh, that um, uh, I can't remember right now. Um, they do talk about the the that the the spider the how apt the metaphor of the spider web because the 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 threads of the spider web trap prey in the same way that human beings are trapped by material longings and material things that they say uh, the the and, and this of course these are tafasir that are very sufi oriented um that human beings trap themselves if uh, if I'm if I remember correctly, it was Ibn Ajiba who said that human beings trap themselves and then devour themselves. That they are a spider that that instead of devouring its children or its spouse, it it, it literally devours itself. And that um, the the so that that is now of course in in tafsir like Ibn Kathir or. Uh, uh, Razi or um, Qurtubi, they, they don't really tell you very much about the, the about they don't pause very long with the metaphor of the spider web. They just say, well, you know, the, the God uh, uh, just asks us to reflect upon this part. But 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 the, I think the the, the it is a very important point and why the image of the spider web. Now, this thing about the, the spider and the, the cave of Hira is very fascinating because that is also you find mostly in, um, in Sufi treatises and writings of Sufis that, um, that did notice the interesting connection between Surah Al-Ankabut right before Hijra and then the narratives about the spider uh, web fooling uh, that it is that there is a certain irony to it that uh, so but these are important points and they're exactly the type of points that if you live with the Surah and you you make the surah your companion, um, it starts yielding these insights, and these insights lead to greater insights. 
but uh, what it, it's really interesting. Um, Ibn Ajiba, when it uh, in in one of the ayat in the Quran, I forgot in which surah it is, but when it talks about Kitabun la al-Mutahharun, and Ibn Ajiba says that what this mean is what this means is not just that this is a book that can only be handled by the pure, but Ibn Ajiba says that. In fact, the inside, this book doesn't yield its insights except for those who purify themselves. And the reason that came to mind is that Ibn Ajib then says, for instance, the metaphor of Al-Ankabut, and then he, he talks about how um, the, um, the only those who struggle to purify their hearts can understand why God uses the metaphors that God uses and what God wants us to reflect on. So yeah, th that's th these are really in, very significant points. Um, what is the significance of the different words that the Quran uses to refer to trials and tribulations? Fitna, ibtila, imtihan? Oh, yeah, there's, um, there's supposed to be, the, the shortest and most straightforward answer is that there's supposed to be levels of um, testing the less demanding of which or less difficult of which uh, would be ibtila. Ibtila is an, is an affliction that doesn't necessarily uh, disrupt, disrupt your entire life. Um, and often an ibtila could be something that is is part a persistent part of your life so you know like weak eyesight is an ibtila um, losing your hearing is an ibtila and imtihan is supposed to be a bit more difficult because it's a test and it's either you fail or you succeed the test uh, you know a lot of people said that every 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 imtihan is an ibtila, but not every ibtila is an imtihan. Um, so that it's sort of like if you have an imtihan, you have a lesser included ibtila in it. Uh, but not every ibtila really tests your faith. A fitna is, is a more difficult test. It rises. It's, it's a more... And then the hardest is the zalzala. Um, now, of course, I, I, I'm saying this with a little bit, is that I notice, I'm not sure that the gradations are correct. I, I do agree that an ibtila seems to be a more individual. Uh, in my view, an ibtila is more 
individualized and it's more a permanent part of a human's life. While a fitna seems to be an intervening cause that is disruptive and it seems to be more generalized. And Izalzala is even more disruptive and more generalized. Um, but yes, that, that's that's an overall is the differentiation in terminology. Okay, thank you. What are the precise reasons that despairing in Allah's mercy is impermissible? Does the wrongness come from rejecting an attribute of God or is it wrong for denying God's favors on oneself? Is there a traditional theory of wrongness in relation to God and God's rights that I can refer to or read about? Oh, gosh. Sunala, did you understand? No, I'm sorry. I heard little parts okay. of it. Sorry, I didn't realize it was off. What are the precise reasons that despairing in Allah's mercy is impermissible? Does the wrongness come from rejecting an attribute of God, or is it wrong for denying God's favors on oneself? Is there a traditional theory of wrongness in relation to God or God's rights that I can refer to or read about? The, the part about read about, yeah, there's a there is a great deal. I mean, just if you read Hayya Ulum al-Din, Ghazali writes about this at great length. Um, I mean, and that's just, I mean, and I don't know if this includes just the, the, the translated material, but if if you're referring to Arabic text, you, you, I mean, Muhasibi writes about it, Mullah Sadra writes about it, um, Razi written, Qadi Abdul Jabbar has uh, literally a whole volume in his Mughni about it. Um, so in terms of discourses, yeah, there, there's a huge body of literature. If if one is limited to English, uh, there are there are a number of good books on Islamic theology that I think are in... Um, uh, in the recommended reading list that Usuli has, that um, uh, most of these books that written on Islamic theology, even by um, Said Hussein Nasr, uh, talk about various aspects of the sort of the theoretical approaches, uh, but. More specifically, this whole issue about God's despairing and God's mercy. It is not the denying of an attribute of God that is the problem. But it is a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what your Lord wants from you. This goes back to um, an earlier issue, and that is for in, in before Islam, there there is a view of God as a, a largely disinterested that God doesn't that God creates for reasons unknown, but once God creates, God is not involved. 
God doesn't have a hereafter. God doesn't doesn't care about justice, and is and that was actually a very dominant view. That although you have a deity, but that deity just creates like uh, like an animal gives birth to to things. Um, the God creates and then leaves human beings to their own affairs and leaves everything to its own affairs. And even God becomes only interested through the interventions, special interventions of sacrifice. Um, then there was the biblical view of God, especially the Old Testament view, as God who favors a race, the Israelites, and God only cares about the Israelites. God is not interested in any of the other people God created. But even with the Israelites, God is rather vindictive um, and angry. Um, so God often, um, I mean, you have to read the Old Testament to understand the outlook. Basically, that God is often gets angry for unclear reasons. God often uh, will punish the very pious in very cruel ways. Uh, but there is no hereafter in the Old Testament outlook. The, the Christian outlook of God was completely encapsulated by the church. And that God cared only about the church. And the will of God only manifested through the church. And so whether God is merciful or not, God is forgiving or not, God is loving or not, it was all contingent on what the church wanted. So if the church wanted to be vindictive, that's what God wants. If God, if the church wanted to wage a crusade, that's what God wants. If the church wanted to burn heretics, that's what God wants. So God has surrendered the divine will to the church. The Islamic outlook was a revolution because it was the antithesis of all of that. That this is an engaged God. This is a God who is thoroughly interested in justice, and God who is merciful without the need for either sacrifices or a chosen people or a chosen institution like the church. And that was very radical for people, and people resisted it. It was a very, very radical idea. So from a scholarly perspective, I can explain to you that why Islam takes such a strong stand. Because by rejecting the idea of a merciful God, you are hearkening back to the idea of either a God that has chooses, chooses a people, chooses an institution, chooses a, a class of um, um priests and so on who did the sacrifices and the old deities. But from a theological perspective, there's an, another issue. Is that basically 
when you don't believe in the merciful, in God's mercy, you don't trust God. You, you, your relationship with God is one of strictly a negotiative relationship. I give you worship, you give me hasanat. My hasanat counters equal this, I get this. That, and, and we saw what happens with that type of outlook with Wahhabism. <laughs> that, that's exactly what Akhbari Shi'ism and what Wahhabism amounted to. It amounts to a very arid, dry religion without passion, without love, without true knowledge of God. God is like a, an accountant. Okay, count the hasanat. Hasanat, you know, exceed the, the sayyat by one heaven. <laughs> you know, it, less than one hell. It leads to horrible results. And no, what is required is that you know your Lord as, as closer to you than your jugular vein, as all-present, as a companion. Um, and to know your Lord as a companion, you must believe that your Lord is interested in you. And if you don't believe that your Lord is Rahman Wadud, Wadud, loving and friendly, th then you can't believe that God is a companion. Then you go back to this idea that God is aloof out there in, on God's throne. You know, like the old view. Oh, uh, you know, I can't be bothered with you beings. Um, which is completely what what Islam came and rebelled against, and what the irony is that Protestantism stole from Islam and then basically centuries later, you know, starts taunting Islam or sticking its tongue out at Islam and saying, oh, you don't know love, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. You took it from us, people, you know, you stole it from us, and then you're bringing it back and trying to stick it on our face. Uh, get real. Uh, th that's just uh, so you know. It's no. It's important to understand what what the the and if we cared about knowledge, if we funded true scholarship, uh, believe me, the whole world would know what I'm telling you. I mean, it, it would be it, it it would be so well documented. It would just be accepted scholarship, but it's because we're a colonized people who spend their money on um, expensive cars and expensive homes and expensive furniture instead of scholarship. That's why the, the you know, that's why when I say things like that, people are surprised. Thank you. Um, Someone was asking just if you could, um, at, like at the very end, you were referencing a Sufi text and talking about occultation and consciousness, and but you kind of skipped over it. Is it okay? Can you uh, oh. just complete your thought? And <laughs> yeah, the reason I skipped on it because it's like the the idea of occultation and Shiism, of course, has a specific, um, and whenever people use the text of. Ghaiba, they got 
accused of being secret Shias, Mutashaya. Uh, and, you know, I, I in the past I've been accused of being a Mutashaya. So, um, I'm not a Shia, but, and, I, and I'm, I don't know if I'm a Sunni either, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I am what I am. God, you know, may Allah accept whatever I am. Um, or put differently, I am partly Shia, I'm partly Sunni. I'm partly everything. And again, may Allah accept whatever I am. I, 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 you know, I, so anyway, that, that, that is the reason I sort of like rushed through it. Um, a little bit of cowardliness. Uh, the idea which I thought was interesting was that, you know, it's a big philosophical question. What's consciousness? Philosophers have written so much about what is consciousness. Okay, and when you get consciousness, is it consciousness comes from nothing? That you know, in modern terms, the energy that you are and that inhabits you. Well, where does the energy come from, and where does it go? We we know that energy cannot be created or destroyed. So where does that energy come from? Is that for me? Uh, where does that energy come from and where does it go? And why does that energy become conscious at, at a certain point and then that consciousness terminates at a certain point? So, you know, Western philosophers have written a lot about this. But before Western philosophers, that actually used to be uh, in, in medieval philosophy and discussed in different terms, but still discussed um, in Greek philosophy and then from Greek philosophy to Islamic philosophy. And one of, one of the interesting solutions proposed from a Sufi perspective, he wasn't engaged in a Kalami discussion. You know, the Mutakallimun write about this at length. Um, it, is that he and I believe it, it is I, I'm, I'm not, I believe it's either Ibn Ajiba or Kushiri, um, who says, well, you know, it, it, is, it is as if before you come to consciousness, you are in a great ghaibah. It is not that you don't exist. I mean, and it's very interesting because they didn't have a concept of energy, but they had a concept of taqa, um, uh, or ma'il hayah, the 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 what the water of life. So you know they said, well, it, it is is that you exist, but you exist as if in a state of occultation. So you're you 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 are not conscious, but you can't say that you don't exist. And then that energy through Allah's intervention becomes conscious for a period of time and that's your life. And then when you die, you don't enter into an 
into Uqayba like the first one because according to, to that is that in death uh, there is a level of consciousness. We don't know what level of consciousness but it is a level of consciousness that either makes that you realize after death I am in trouble or I'm in good shape. It looks like I'm heading to heaven. I'm going to be okay or oh man I messed up royally and I'm heading to hell. Um, and in fact he talks about Azab al-Qabr and, and so on as part of that and so he says that's a, lower, a smaller occultation and then the occultation ends when the hereafter comes and you are in full state of consciousness again and what I remember is that he said that this consciousness you have upon resurrection is even greater than the consciousness that you have on earth because on earth you have numerous veils that obscure your sight. You don't see the world of unseen. In our language, you don't see the other dimensions that exist around you, that surround you, but you just don't see them. But on the hereafter, your basar is hadid, as the Quran says, that you're, 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 you will see everything. And you see everything for its true nature. Um, so that was basically the... It's like, um, it's not that so much that it's new, but it was just a nice way of putting things. Um, okay, um, a question. A question on the use of the term munafikun in verse 11. I had the mistaken impression that this term only emerged in the Medinan period. Um, is Ankabut the earliest use of this term in the Quran? That's a, that's a good question, yeah. And from, from the Halakha, I see Ankabut as warning of the dangers of Nifak, um, specifically among believers, then only later post-Hijra. Does Allah use Nifak to refer to an external group of hidden unbelievers? Is this correct? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Uh, that's actually something I... That, I just neglected to talk about that. Yes, you're absolutely right. Munafiqun, the first time that it we it emerges is in Ankabut. And it is pre-Medina. And that theme of Nifaq uh, becomes far more developed and far more present in the uh, post-Mecca period. And of course, it becomes a more a far more persistent problem, but it. English? What? what does that mean? Oh, oh, uh, uh, hypocrisy and hypocrites. But it's it, it was in it as the Quran prepares Muslims to to make the ultimate sacrifice. I mean, it's very interesting that that as they are a persecuted group, um, the, the term hypocrisy does, is not used in the, the Quranic discourse. And uh, as if the persecution and the persistence of persecution um, it creates a solidarity and a black-white mentality between people. You know, it's either you are with Muslims or 
uh, and the other party against Muslims. But as Allah knows that Muslims will start one being required to make these sacrifices of completely changing their life, and two, as they start building a, a societies of their own, uh, where there is an incentive for people to stand on the sideline and wait to see who will be victorious and to join the winning side, the theme of hypocrisy become far more consistent. But Al Ankabut is um, uh, is a surah where you have the Quran specifically pointing out that. There, the hypocrisy could be a serious problem among believers. And as I studied the Ankabut, I, I mean, it's it, to me it's remarkable how uh, it it introduces Muslims to the idea of, and because also Ankabut is is where. Um, if I recall, I, I might. I might revise, I'll correct this later, but if I recall, it's the first time where the concept of jihad is used systematically as a as a struggle against the self. And with that, the concept of hypocrisy is also involved, is invoked. Um, so I mean, it's it's so many levels. Al Ankabut is a, is a remarkable surah um, because it upped the ante for everyone and required everyone to 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 look within and to ask themselves: Are we now prepared to make? A larger sacrifice, and it's something to to think about. I mean, if you are chained and tortured, and or 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 persecuted in in the economic boycott of Muslims that nearly starved them and so on, but that is not considered as it as 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 challenging as being required to make the type of sacrifice that cuts you off from your uh, familiar uh, social uh, setting and economic sacrifice where you actually abandon all your livelihood and migrate. It's something to think about. I mean, I, I can tell you that from, from experience, from experience, I know a lot of people, a lot of people, who did not fail when tested, when they were arrested and tortured. They, 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 they were steadfast. But when it came to the test of their, the way they conduct themselves in their professional lives, the way they handle money, the way they handle business affairs, they failed. Um, I know people who, who were tortured, um, you know, 
was were heroes. But then when it came out to the, to, they were you know they they were they were released and then they made businesses. They were not honest. They cheated. And that's very interesting. You know, their their true fitna was the the fitna of money. Um. It, it money is a far, is a very deceptive god. I mean, it it is. Um, uh, notice, this is. Um, yeah, I'll tell you this. Okay, notice when when Satan tells Adam and Eve to eat of the forbidden apple. And when they eat of the forbidden apple, what is the first thing that happens? They see their 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 their, their private parts, right? A lot of you know a lot of commentators think, well, God told them don't eat the apple. Um, consider this. That Adam and Eve, we don't even know if Adam and Eve were eating or what they were eating or if they were eating. What God tells them is, don't, the way I understand this, this whole narrative, is that stay away, you are in an ethereal existence. Stay away from material things. What Satan entices them to do is to trust materiality. If you eat this apple, you will have eternity. An apple is going to give you eternity? So you went from the, the, the realm of principle and ethereality to physical, material things. And at that point, they see the true nature or they see, they perceive themselves very differently. They perceive themselves as a man was the private parts of a man, and as a woman was the private parts of a woman, which didn't exist in the ethereal universe. Man was was, and woman, man and woman were indistinguishable in terms of their physical things didn't matter. Um, it's something to ponder. I mean, I I take that that the whole story as as again as as an, an educational anecdote to tell us material things. If you are not on guard with the right type of attitude towards material things, they will deprecate you and degrade you. And and as we go with our journey in the Quran, the Quran consistently tells us they will make you not like yourself and not respect yourself. Ultimately, you're not going to love yourself. You're going to seek the material, but you're going to hate yourself for seeking the material. And the only way that you love yourself and you heal yourself is your gaze and your attachment be redirected towards Allah? Okay. Alhamdulillah, thank you. Um, in Surah Surah Al 
um, Akaf and Ankabut both warn about what we build our reliance upon? Is there any difference to be understood between the two warnings? While Akaf seemed to be directed to the unbelievers, was Ankabut directed towards the believers? That's a good question. Um, no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Um, every, you know, it is like, it's really like if you're raising your child and you want to teach your child a group of lessons about your ethics, um, the right attitude towards life, morality, virtue, and you use different approaches at different times as different examples arise in life. And you're telling your child, look, you know, this happened, if you think about it, this teaches us this. And if you are a good parent, all the lessons will complement each other. If you're a bad parent, you, you, your child is going to get be getting conflicting messages from you, and your child will be very confused. But if you're a good parent, ultimately, it is just different events in life that are all reinforcing the same message. And my journey with the Quran has taught me precisely this, that the Quran is, when it's talking to unbelievers, a lot of what it's saying is relevant for believers, and when it's talking to believers, a lot of what it's saying is relevant to unbelievers. And that a lot of the lessons are Allah saying, look, ponder this, ponder this, ponder this, but if you put it all together, it all tells you, pretty much the same thing. In the same way that, you know, when Allah says, if you if you don't have the right attitude towards life, you could be on quick, it's like you exist on an unstable quicksand. Allah comes in a different context and says, if you don't have the right attitude in life, the, your, entirety, society, your entire society could be a society like a, like a spider with a spider web. And all of it, it's it's exactly, you know, it reminds me a lot, and I write about this in Reasoning with God. Um, I, I, I didn't put this in the book, but this is part of what came through, is that at one point it struck me that as I would listen to a lot of symphonies I liked, a lot of concertos that I liked, um, that, you know, a lot of them simply contributed to, is to, to my, if you want, well, the way my brain is wired in making it more elevated and more civilized and because more appreciative of beauty. And that I would the only time that I would not 
what the the music was the music that was harsh and atonal and the composers were making it a point to to jar my emotions but when i you know when i listened to bach or listening to mozart or listening to beethoven that they didn't exclude each other they all complemented each other they were all a part of a, a beautific discourse and that my relationship with the quran became very much like that is that at times i would what would come to my mind is that oh is my life like being on quicksand you know am i standing on stable grounds i better be careful so i'm not being like a spider in a with their spider web all of it would be relevant and they don't exclude each other and we don't need to segment it and as we'll see there are so many of these messages that complement each other like a, like like symphonic performances that elevate your spirit um, and your intellect and your soul. Thank you, Alhamdulillah. Okay, as we have learned so far, after multiple halakhas now, there is a vital importance in correlating the timing of revelation to the seerah of the Prophet in order to understand the meaning of the Quran. What is the main reason our current mushafs are not organized in such a manner? Well, I, I mean, they're, they're not... Um, I mean, the, why, why, how the Quran is organized is a very big... Um, scholarly topic um you know whether it goes back to mushaf osman or it's a later development or so on but i think that when when in in my journey i think that in among earlier generations they they relied on the fact that for scholars um Learning the Quran was not expected to be something that you attain from books. That learning Quranic sciences was something that was always at the hands of sages. And so the, the, the idea of just, you know, going and getting a book and reading it on your own and getting your education through that, that's a much later idea, much, much later books were always were always expected to be um study aids to studying with sages and it is also there are you know i if allah gives me the health and, and life may I, I would love to write a book about this that the the educational process it was always assumed that with the book there will be a teacher with and that it is the teacher will alert you. So I find that when people talk about the way that they studied the Quran, that they would in fact study not just the occasions for revelation, but what that meant, what the Quran meant, and why, what was the message, and what was the significance of the message at the particular time it came, and and then we you know later on we get into these debates about whether abrogation or no abrogation, but these debates arose from from that the entire culture. I think when 
when the institution of teachers um, crumbled, I mean, weakened and then crumbled, and then it just became texts. So you go and you buy tafsir and just read the tafsir uh, without the guidance of a teacher. Uh, that's when we get the problem that we get. It, it, it's quite remarkable that when I rem remember a lot of the shiuch I studied with, um, knowledge of what surah was revealed when and how and how that impacted the meaning was 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 natural to them. I mean, it was just second nature. Um, um, I don't know any of my teachers that went that taught the Quran the way the Quran is organized in print. Every teacher I studied with taught the Quran in the order of revelation, more or less, skipping a little bit here and there, uh, especially when it's not very clear whether, you know, this surah came after this surah. But effectively, you know, the early surahs, the, the, the middle early surahs, the late early surahs, the Medina surahs, the late Medina surahs, and that's the way they and they would did that just naturally, um, and I it's interesting because none of the students I never thought of asking the teacher why are you skipping around like that. It just I thought, oh, that's the most natural thing in the world. But um, yeah, then you come to the United States where you know you have these. But keep in mind that a lot of the people that in the United States that teach about the Quran. Are are completely self-taught, or so they're literally either illiterate or semi-illiterate. Um, you know, the most that they learn is how to recite the Quran, and then maybe they read Ibn Kathir, or you know, maybe if they're diligent, they'll read Qurtubi or Tabari or something, and that's it. Um, that that doesn't amount to a Quranic education, does it? Okay, so I think we've officially passed our five-hour mark, right? We are approaching our six-hour mark. So how are you doing? We, we finished the questions for the surah. Okay. So now we can, we can cross over into others. I know that you wanted to do that one about the parent. The, the parent. Um, uh, are we going to have a, a Q&A session or no? We haven't decided yet. So we can talk about that. It's up to you. Well, ask them how are they doing. How are you guys doing? <laughs> Joe in the UK, what time is it? And I'll allow so. <laughs> Six hours. I'm not even thinking of the time. Okay, good. <laughs> it's daylight over there. Oh, okay, ask me that question then, maybe. And then we can stop after that, maybe. Yeah. Okay, so we're just going to do. Um, we, we have a lot of Q&A questions, so I think it makes sense to hold on to them, but we do have one that we wanted to do that didn't come in as a result of the Q&A, but actually um, came after, I mean, through our email, um, after we recorded that short session about privacy for teenagers. So um, this is kind of a longer question, so I'm going to read it. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Okay, so as I was saying, this was an email that we got after the um, recording that uh, we did about um, privacy in teenagers. Um, and it's a longer email, so I'm gonna, um, so, so please be patient. Um, Maybe post it separately too. Okay. 
Assalamu alaikum. Um, after having uh, some Dr. Abulfadl, after having looked into your work at the Usuli Institute for the past few months, I would like to convey my deepest gratitude for your work in renewing our understanding of Islam. I'm born and raised in the UAE and am cur currently studying psychology. Um, the base question I have is what does obedience to parents entail in Islam? Um, all of the answers I find are unsatisfactory and seem to be incomplete when it comes to parents controlling or micromanaging their children's lives, not outright physical or emotional abuse, um, because you have clarified that it does not make sense to stick around when you're being harmed. Does a child have to agree to it and what uh, and follow what their parent says? All I hear is that parents have good intentions for their children and have the most right over them after God because they brought them into this world. But through an academic lens, what I hear from Islamic sources really seems to be unhealthy and destructive in the long run. We see cycles of parents living through their children and being unable to live up to their personal potentials. When it comes to career choices, personal pursuits, and social circles, does a parent have the right to restrict the child and order them to fit into their personal ideals? A fatwa by Ibn al-Saleh restricts the definition of disobedience to that which harms parents. Is this a sound ruling in your opinion? Does a parent engaging in risky and aggressive behavior or using emotional blackmail, for example, not eating or drinking or delving into sadness and self-pity because their child is not listening to them, does that count? There is a surprising amount of emotionally immature parents who repeat generational cycles of trauma and dysfunctional familial systems because they never get the chance to address their own issues and repress it only for it to pour out into their children's lives. In psychology, we've learned about setting boundaries and what constitutes a healthy relationship, but all I hear in Islamic discourse is a child owing everything to their parents. If a person comes to me, a therapist, wanting to deal with toxic parents by taking autonomy of their life path, setting boundaries, and breaking these cycles despite their parents being uncomfortable and angry, do I proceed to help them work towards this, or does the Islamic obligation take precedence? This being um, given that one is respectful in their conduct towards their parents and make sure that their physical safety, for example, housing, bills, health care, etc., is not compromised. I recall you mentioning that Islam is a religion of natural disposition, but this parent-child conundrum, much like husband-wife conundrum, seems to be a system that can and is exploited by many. All the sheikhs and ulema I listen to in turn point the blame at the insolence of children. I don't understand why they turn a blind eye to the toxicity of helicopter parenting and the gaping holes in the system we have. I apologize for burdening you with this lengthy question, but I deeply trust your outlook and hope to receive guidance on this matter. Thank you for all of your work, and I pray Allah grants you success and blessings in this life and the hereafter. Well, well obviously, uh, th this is a very educated um, questioner. Or the the person who posed this question is very educated and intelligent. Okay, um, we need to unpack a few things. There is a fatwa by Sheikh Saleh um, that does say that the that basically obligates children to obey their parents as a way of honoring them in nearly everything and that um, the only time you can disobey is pretty much if obeying will harm the parent like 
you know, if a, if a parent wants to drink alcohol and says, bring me the bottle, um, then according to this fatwa, you might say, no, I can't do that because that's not, that's not healthy for you. I see this as, a, as 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 deeply, deeply problematic, and and let me put this in context because this is a really important issue, and I can't, uh, I mean, I can't emphasize how important this is. Um, the problem, in a word, is authoritarianism and despotism. The irony is that the, the early generations of Muslims, the very first generations, sprouted and thrived and flourished because, not because you had a collectivity of people that were indistinct from each other and that lived abiding by the commands and obligations of tradition and custom, but actually because of exactly the opposite. Each, the reason we know so much about the companions of the Prophet is because each of them was such an individual. And each of them, the way that the Prophet ﷺ dealt with people, men and women, if you look at the seerah carefully, and inshallah may Allah allow us to, to cover the seerah, is that the Prophet ﷺ was a master of empowering individuals. Each individual around the Prophet felt very important and very felt their sense of self-worth was enormous. Whether in the Prophet consulting with them, whether in the Prophet joking with them, whether in the Prophet teaching them, the, the whole edifice was that you as a person, as an individual, you're very important to me. And you are very important to Islam. And you can make great contributions. And the irony is that the vast majority of these people converted long before their parents and rebelled against their parents in order to be Muslims and in order to live the Islamic dream. But traditional society rules traditional societies, values, roles, role-playing, and traditional societies, especially societies that are Bedouin societies or agricultural societies, the emphasis is on raising a child to literally, literally perform like a soldier because you cannot afford individuality. You have land that you need to be farmed. You raise your children. You, you give birth to 10 children. You calculate that five of them are going to die from disease. The other five must be raised to help you in the farm. That is the way you're going to 
preserve life. If you are in the Bedouin society, you have to raise your children again. X number are going to help you maintain the tribal duties. Each one has a defined role, and you pretty much dictate the role that the children are supposed to play from the very beginning. The problem, though, is that when you breathe down the neck of children and tell them their predetermined role, predetermined role in terms of career, in terms of dreams, in terms of aspirations, in terms of marriage, in terms of everything, um, it might help survival, but it destroys civilizational aspirations because civilization is created out of creativity and imagination and ingenuity and invention. That's what creates civilization. And sustenance societies, societies that focus just on survival and sustenance, do not encourage creativity, ingenuity, individuality, or invention. You want people to just perform like soldiers. And so much of our tradition, although we have all these models of people who refuse to obey their parents, or refuse to obey their husbands, or refuse to obey their wives. And we have numerous, numerous reports of these narratives of individual rebellion in order to assert, uh, and, in, and in fact, part of it, I mean, I'll tell you, that part of it is, is remarkable, because a lot of the jurists uh, and a lot of the scholars in the in the first centuries of Islam, in order to attain, in order to, to learn, they would have to spend their entire life traveling. And so they would have a wife in Kufa, and they spend 10 years traveling, collecting hadiths or reading with scholars in Egypt and in, uh, in Morocco, in Damascus. And often that was done by claiming asserting individuality and saying, I'm not going to play the role that is predetermined for me. I'm going to pursue that role of pretty much adventure. I mean, adventure, but in a, in a way that, because you're going to have to travel and seek knowledge and, and, and all of that. And of course, you know, it, if it was traditional roles, you wouldn't have traveled anywhere. You wouldn't have explored anything. You wouldn't have investigated anything. Eventually, what sets in into Islamic civilization, unfortunately, is the emphasis of an authoritarianism and despotism. And while that made sense historically in the medieval era, because that was a common feature uh, everywhere in the world, everywhere in the world, it, you know, but it was a disaster when modernity set in. Because in modernity, surplus is supposed to be transformed into creativity. But if you are raising children 
on the principle of obedience, you're snuffing out their creativity. You're snuffing out their ability to even think independently or to feel independently. What we started seeing, especially as Muslim societies became colonized and defeated, look at, look at I mean, I'll give you, look at the, the people who created Israel, right? It was these kibbutz, kibbutz by people who were adventurers. They, they left their families, they, go li- they lived their professions, they go live in a kibbutz in Palestine, they go and farm these lands, they live a very harsh life, they carry guns, they do things that, they're, that are not safe, but were adventurous, but were frontier. And, as a, and, and Palestinian society, as much as it resisted, was still within the conventional, traditional society of obedience. So when the Israeli fighter met the Arab fighter on the battlefield, the Israeli fighter had creativity and autonomy and independence. If they got stuck, they thought of solutions. The Arab fighter couldn't do anything without the command of their officer. They weren't used to thinking freely or independently. And as a result, Israel had no problem defeating the Arab armies because the minute you you severed their contacts with their command, they couldn't think. They couldn't function. The only thing they could do was surrender. And sadly, that continues till today, by the way. Till today. You, you, you sit with Israeli soldiers and they're, they're autonomous. They think freely on their own. But you sit with Arab soldiers, they're like robots. And that is why it's, it's, it, 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 the creative mind, whenever it meets the, 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 the conformist mind, the creative mind will always win. What started happening with our culture of defeat is our frustrated parents would live vicariously through their children. And I mean this in every way. Parents would get it in their mind that I am sacrificing everything so that I can live your, my success through you. But then you are robbing your children of a life. They never get a chance to, to dream. They never get a chance to ask themselves, what, what do I want? What would make me feel useful in life? Even if the result was that they would not make money like you would want them to make, or if they don't follow the set pattern that you set for them, as our sense of insecurity in the world increased, what often happens is that the strong oppresses the weak. So those higher classes controlled lower classes. And within the family unit, the husband would control the wife. And the, the, the parents would control the children. What is the result? Look around you. When, and in an Islamic center, a woman goes in and 
you have other women jump on her to tell her that hijab is wrong or she, her dress is wrong. What they're expressing is their frustration at being disempowered. And they're, they're, they don't realize it, but they're exercising a false sense of power over this other person. And in turn, other people exercise power over them. Very different than people who feel confident and satisfied and they step into a space and each of them feels a sense of dignity and honor and confidence. I don't need to flex my muscles over you to feel a sense of security. I can cooperate. I can work with you. So what we are doing to our children by teaching them that obedience to Allah means obedience to your parents is disastrous. Put bluntly, it's disastrous. You honor and you respect your parents. You honor and you respect, but honor and respect is not obedience. So the fatawa that you get from so many of these traditional jurists are disastrous because they go as far as telling you if you are in love with someone and your parent says, don't marry this person, you have to obey. If your parent says, I want you to marry this person, you have to obey. If your parent tells you, I want you to go to school, you have to obey. If the parent wants to tell you, I, you have to have this profession, you have to obey. So, and then in turn, you're going to do the same thing to your children because that's all you know. That destroys the miracle of the human being. A human being in to learn thinking is a is a skill that you learn. Learning to overcome difficulties and not to succumb to fitna is a skill that you learn. Why do you think so many Arab men? I know so many, Allah al Azim, I know so many that pray in a mosque. That go to Jummah. I know some even that give the khutbah at Jummah. But you know what? The minute a blonde woman bats an eye on them, they melt. You know, whether they, so many, that I, I'm telling you, they give khutbahs at the mosque and they cheat on their wives. Because they have not been equipped to resist. They they are so weak. They have they have no no they don't know who they are as human beings because their parents never allow them to know who they are as human beings. So they're like paper. They're, 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 they're like you know you blow at them, they fall apart. Respect and obedience are two separate things. And that is an art. Why the way the way I respect my wife and honor my wife is not by telling her you must obey me, but by encouraging her to be her own self. And feeling happy that she is her own self. Similarly, a child and a parent, with a parent and a child, 
in all relationships, because I'm sure my wife does the same with me, otherwise it would be really ridiculous, that you, you, as a parent, you have an obligation to always ask your child and be sincere about it. What do you want to do? How, what do you feel about this? You give them advice and direction and you protect them. But ultimately, in order for them to learn to walk and run, they have to fall. And you have to accept that. You know, I commend the woman who wrote this question in, in being alert to this because it, it has produced so many disastrous consequences. I was fortunate. May Allah bless her soul. My mother, she took me out of three Arab schools because in these schools the teachers taught, treated the students like they are soldiers in an army. And my mother would always emphasize, I, it doesn't count unless it is your own path. If you just do what I tell you to do, then you will never be, will know how to worship Allah or how to be a true, in a true relationship to, with Allah because your relationship is simply derivative from me. The minute I'm not in your life, you'll fall apart. She would tell me that. And she was right. Because you know what? When I left home and came to the United States and I was 19 years old, all the friends that I knew, the minute they were away from their parents... They started drinking and they started sleeping with women and they started, because their whole religiosity derived from their parents. Because my religiosity was sincere in that as messed up as, as my experiences were, but they were my own. I knew how to resist and I knew how to chart my own path. And it was not derivative from my mother. My mother didn't need to be there for me to do what I believed is the right thing. Um, I, you know, I don't know how many of you have children, but, and if you have been raised by an authoritarian parent, it's never too late. It's never too late to liberate your intellect and spirit. It is your obligation to do so. You know, whatever you do because of the paradigm of despotism and control is not from God. God gave us autonomy. God gave us freedom of choice. How could it be that God gives us freedom of choice and a parent takes it away? Or a husband takes it away? How? It doesn't make any sense. Is that okay? Alhamdulillah, that was absolutely excellent. So, okay, so we've crossed the six-hour mark, and I think we should stop here so we can let the the sheikh rest, and hopefully, um, we'll we'll figure out whether we can do a Q and A. Um, I I'll put this challenge out there since people stepped up and were were so sad with us not to have an Illumin halakha, 
If we get another 20 by this coming weekend, inshallah, we'll have another Illumin Halakha. I know I can work on the shift for that. So I throw that out there. Um, if not, then we might have to just settle. Although it's still, Q&A is pretty awesome too. Um, but so inshallah, I'll, I'll let people know um, what, what we decide about, about the Q&A inshallah. But thank you so much for another incredible session. I know we have a lot to think about and recover from. It was pretty intense and powerful, alhamdulillah. Every time I tell you, you know, you have no idea how much the Quran. I mean, can you imagine? You've this is now what? So how many surahs? This is now the eighth. Eight surah. We we still have a long journey to go. One hundred and six more to go. Yeah. Inshallah. <laughs> oh my God. 